Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. Twitter, and I'm really happy to have with us today uh, Jason Rohr, uh, who you know from Castle Doctrine, Passage, uh, One Hour, One Life, his new game, uh, just all sorts of indie games. Jason, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. No, my pleasure. Um, so uh, we, we talked before the show started about all the stuff we were going to discuss, uh, and I will, I'm not, this is a good setup for me to sandbag you, but I'm not. <laughs> Uh, I just I, I wanted to say off the top, it's it's really interesting uh, to have you on because you're well, there might have been one or two guests sort of like this, but you're the first guest that really uh, bridges game design and academia in, in a way uh, in that like you're written about, you're taught in the academy. Um, do you feel like uh, your games are intentionally this way or do they just kind of lend themselves <laughs> to an academic view? Uh, well, I, I mean, I did, uh, I was in academia for oh, really? a while, a long time ago. Um, okay. What was your, what was your, uh, what was your poison? I got my, I'll tell you first, I got my PhD in English. That was my, yeah, uh, I, bad choice. I, I never, I never got a PhD, but, uh, I was working on one Good for call. a while in, in computer science. Okay. Um, okay. So, uh, this was back before, um, there was any sort of critical discourse going on in academia about games at all. And. And, you know, I, I don't know if it, you know, back when I was growing up or when I was considering college options and so on, I, you know, the idea of going to college for games or even trying to pursue a career in games was just not even on the radar. Right. It was like, sure. You know, uh, the games were these mysterious things that came in a box from GameStop and who knows who <laughs> made them and how they made them. Right? <laughs> right. And so, so I liked them. I liked them, but the idea that I might make them just seems so far fetched, you know, just, I was, sure. you know, so, um, so anyway, I was studying computer science, not because I was interested in, in becoming a game designer even, just because, well, I was interested in computers, right? Right, sure. No, that's <laughs> and, the natural and, and, thing. And then later on, these places that I went, you know, I went to Cornell and then, you know, got a couple of degrees there and then eventually worked on a PhD at UC Santa Cruz. Okay. Um, those places became, like, especially UC Santa Cruz kind of became a... Uh, a, a um, I'm not. I'm missing the word here, but the, the, the juggernaut or whatever for 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 <laughs> game games in academia, right? Like there's this yeah. whole Santa Cruz uh, is know, huge and, there. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. And so my even my advisor Jim Whitehead, who I was working on, you know, toward the end of my 
career as a PhD student, I was working on um, you know distributed information systems like hypertext and um, and ways to build websites that do interesting things with information and, and links and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, he and I were talking about that kind of stuff all the time. We never even mentioned games to each other, right? Like, I don't, yeah. I didn't know whether he played games or we never talked about them. The only thing outside of our work I remember talking to Jim Whitehead about was uh, ambient music. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I had made an album of ambient music, and I remember giving it to him, and he liked it and whatever, and that was it as far as, like, anything outside of WebDAV and Hypertext, the Hypertext conference, you know? Yeah. But then a couple of years after I left, they he spearheaded this whole, like, games program there, right? Like, and... um Oh, that's and, funny you know, that you guys I never talked to him later. It. I was like, dude, I didn't know you were at all interested in games or whatever. Anyway, so and then Mike, you know, they ended up hiring Michael Matias, who had been my yep. sort of you know longtime game design hero from Facade. And uh, you know, why did why didn't you guys hire Michael Matias when I was still there? <laughs> <laughs> that's like so, the classic academia uh, lament. Like, why did you hire this great person the year after I uh, I graduated? Now that said, I don't. I mean, I was an academic skeptic by the time I was done with academia. Um, Fair. You know, I, I even wrote a post-academic manifesto while I was a PhD student. I got a little bit of traction. And, uh, and you know, it just, um, I don't know, I guess I sort of felt like a lot of what was going on, you know, at least in the computer science program as I saw it, was kind of this, I don't know, fluffing a lot of simple ideas up with complicated, uh, you know, uh, mathematical symbols right sure sure (laughs) like everyone has to develop their own uh you know greek symbol language for the simple (laughs) problem that they're trying to you know and and come up with these mathematical and when you actually look at it you know you realize well there's if it wasn't for these symbols there's not actually almost nothing here yeah like they're picking a number out of a hat but they've got this big like (laughs) complicated (laughs) equation that describes like what they're actually you know what they're doing there (laughs) and so i was like I was like kind of when I was in academia and I did publish papers, I actually got a paper published in a journal and maybe something at a conference as well. But, you know, it was like um, I was refusing to play that game. Right. I was Mm -hmm. like, I'm not going to add like equations to this paper just to put some math in there. If there's not if it's not needed, I'll just explain it in English. Um, And so I was like trying to the idea was if I ever got a Ph.D., I wouldn't write one of these 250 page things that no one ever reads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, which, of course, you have to do to get a PhD. So I see why you dropped out. <laughs> well, no, 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 you don't. You do not, right? You actually do not. Um, you know, if you come up with a good enough idea that's a core good enough idea and you research it concisely, right? Like there can be a 10 page PhD mm-hmm. thesis, right? <laughs> that actually gets published. Theoretically, um, yeah, I guess you're right. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it that far out of the, uh, that's really like, disrupting it. And and the idea that you fl- you fluff it up with all these like chapter after chapter of previous work and like you know all of a sudden <laughs> it's like you know um, when I was doing uh, like PhD like I was I was publishing a paper or something if there was no previous work in this area that I was that w- I was aware of or was I just would leave that se- I would not even put that section in my paper right right I wouldn't go and like try and like dig up a bunch of previous work in the area just for the sake of doing it. I would have like maybe, you know, almost no references at the end of the paper because this was all original. You know, whatever. I just like I wasn't going to play. My, my, my PhD advisor was like, well, it's, it's, it's normal for you to put your advisor's name as a co-author. And I was like, well, but, you know. <laughs> but you didn't, you didn't help. Do, you didn't do anything. Like I wrote every single word here. I did all this, you know. I, he kind of just like was like, OK, I guess you're a single author, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so it was just like, oh, all this stuff. I don't know. It's just kind of bothering me. And, and I don't know that. Um, the stuff I've seen coming out of games academia 
is definitely not any better, right? I, or it's it's kind of it's kind of halfway English, halfway. It's kind of a mix between the humanities and the sciences and this kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. A lot of it is like, you know, even if they're doing like what they sort of like sort of hardcore kind of more like technical research, a lot of the stuff is so far away from being used by anyone who's actually making games. Um, right. That it's like kind of like, well, who's it's got the same problem, right? Yeah. And, and like, I agree. I, um, I ended up getting into, uh, you know, criticism from this line, uh, from this end of things doing English. Cause I was interested in video games and I was interested in how they might look as texts. And, uh, you know, there, there are people like, uh, uh, um, Pat Jagoda, who was uh, a co-author on, um, on your, uh, <laughs> on your, yeah. uh, uh, art exhibit, uh, catalog. Um, you know, he, he's a, a smart dude. I like his work. All right. Um, but like, I felt that there was a lot of, again, a lot of complexity where there didn't need to be complexity, a lot of trying to redefine the wheel when really we could just read these games. And um, a lot of, uh, maybe, and maybe this keys into some of your, your um, dissatisfaction, a lot of, um, a lot of workarounds to justify writing about video games in the first place that take up, say, like three quarters of the article. Um, right, right. some, some way of saying like, this is serious. Let me, let me work around why this is serious instead of just jumping into the problem itself. Um, yeah, I and- mean, the next time I hear the word recontextualizes, I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, there was another thing that happened with that catalog, which is Mike Mizell, the other co-author. Yes. He's, he's comes from a fine art curatorial background, right? And yeah. That, I found the curatorial is, background interesting in that, in that book, actually. That, that, that is almost, um, you know, I've. I've had some exposure to the fine art world. My uncle uh, was a working fine artist back when I was growing up, and um, he has this largest collection of personal collection of art books I've ever seen. You know, walls and walls in his house of thousands and thousands of of art books. Right. Cool. And so when I was growing up, I was always leafing through those and like having them take me to. Ch- they live in Chelsea, so I'd be like, "Take me to some Chelsea galleries. What is being shown right now? Like, I don't want to see what's in the museum. I want to see like what people are talking about. Right. Yeah, something new." Yeah. And so, you know, when you go into those places, they often hand you this kind of like pamphlet with like the, the sort of curator statement about the body of work. <laughs> so, right, yeah. some, of this, some of this stuff in there is just, um, yeah, I, don't, I remember there's this one, there was this one, I'd have been to museums as well, but I remember there's this one piece that really stuck out to me. Um, uh, it was like, it was a, it's a, a fan. I can't remember the name of the artist, but it's a really cool piece. It's a, it's a fan hanging from like a 20 foot long chain, uh, just a normal industrial fan, like a like a floor fan for mm-hmm. like, to blow blow air in your house or something, and it's it's hanging from this chain, and the the cord goes up with some extension cords up to the ceiling, and so the fan is on high, and it's kind of blowing itself around in this chaotic pattern. That's cool. Uh, almost almost like one of those tiny little toy airplanes that you hang from the ceiling in the '80s that would just fly around in a circle. But it it's because there's air currents and so on. It's going back and forth and changing direction and speeding up and slowing down and in this kind of crazy <laughs> pattern. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's like only like a couple feet above your head. So it's also kind of scary and dangerous feeling. Right. Right. And um, and you go and look at the little plaque on the wall next to it. And it talks about how it it's uh, questions the very questions, the very nature of what it means to see. Oh, <laughs> something like this. Yeah. Like, oh, my gosh. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, so right. I've, <laughs> I've seen stuff like, you know, where it's like. You know, here we have, <laughs> I mean, the blank canvas or the square on the canvas. I'm fine with that. It's pretty amazing and cool. But that's all it is, right? Right. So, so your, your sort of, your skepticism comes from the explanation, not from the art itself, right? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not, a, I'm not uh, somebody who's, uh, 
who's <laughs> sitting here saying my kid could paint that or any of that kind right, of right which is like my least favorite thing to hear as a teacher i always yeah, get angry but i mean about I, that. I i like i mean but on the other hand i do watch a movie like art school confidential and laugh my my head off right sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you can curse on the cast it's okay uh, yeah, yeah. but yeah no like, for sure and like it's it's interesting. I found it really interesting reading about the way that they contextualized your work too, because there was this, there was this tension where, and I, I wrote about this actually. I should, I should be careful about advertising this. I guess uh, I wrote about this in a piece on Nonsite that uh, I published recently. I think it was the one on Nonsite. It might have been the one on Electronic Book Review. I have a couple of pieces on video games that made their way into some journals. But the um, that's not a brag. It's just more of a like a, a curatorial thing, I guess. But the. Uh, the thing that I was interested in when I was reading through that book was like, it, it, they really struggled to get to a a balance between okay, is this about us fitting these games into the museum, or is this about us telling the story about what these games mean? And you, as a creator, do kind of fall out uh, as a character in that in that catalog. I I never really thought of you in that catalog in the way same way that I would think of like. Oh, this is uh, a roar uh, game. Like I, w- I would think, okay, like if I'm playing Castle Doctrine, if I'm playing Passage or, or One Hour One Life, I'm thinking about you as a creator. I didn't really think that way when I was reading the catalog. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I was, I, 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 I razzed Mike Mizell a lot ahead of time about curatorial fluffy, fluffed up curatorial language, right? <laughs> right. And so I think, I think he was kind of like had that in the back of his mind. I mean, I, I, I didn't see anything too flagrant in that book compared to some of the things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's, people, right? it's totally smart. I was just I was I was struck by the the approach because uh, Mizell's and um, and and Jagoda had, I mean it, they were they were very interesting co-authors. But reading their um, their editor statements, it really it was it was like watching all of the disciplines kind of trying to converge on video games um, right, in a right. way that they're like trying very 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 hard for whatever reason not to treat them as typical texts. Right. Um, I mean, the other thing I was trying to do uh, with that catalog, as I said, like, look, let's get some non-academic, non-curatorial writers in here, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think I think the kind of writing that I like the best that's going on about video games is is stuff that's coming from actually the sort of upper end of of games journalism. You sure. Know? Um, you know, things like you know Lee, Lee Alexander or something. I mean, she's not a curatorial person. She's not an academic, but she you know, had these really insightful, deep kind of interesting takes on, on games. And I was trying to get them to at least let her do like a guest essay or something. And they're like, no, that's not the way this works. <laughs> but they did, they did interview, um, they did interview me, of course. So there's right, some sure. words in there. And then they, I also talked them into interviewing uh, the like sort of top player of my games, Joshua Collins. So he's this guy who's like really super smart guy, but just is a, a fan, I guess, who's played a lot of my games really deeply over the years. He has still and Primrose was this little puzzle game I had on iPhone a long time ago. And he has like all the top scores on the scoreboard. <laughs> OK, um, you know, and then he was like the one who broke the Castle Doctrine more times than anybody else, you know, and, and made me scramble back to fix things and, and <laughs> discovered nuances of the electronics that allowed tele, you know, uh, spooky action at a distance or whatever, you know. Yeah, um, they basically there was no radio in the game, but they kind of discovered radio by exploiting the way that the electronics were being simulated. Oh, that's funny. So, <laughs> so you basically send, QA tested your games for free. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, they could, they figured out a way that they, because of the way the, the circuits were being simulated, they could send signals like through the air. Wow. <laughs> Effectively, you know. And so um, then they could that's have these switches, cool. like, like a remote control, basically, operating in the house because 
they could exploit the the timing and the way the circuits were being simulated. Anyway, so all that kind of stuff, like playing super deeply, him and his brothers, you know, like staying up like you know all night and coming up with these crazy maps in the Castle Doctrine. And then I, you know, when Cordial Minuet came out, um, he was also essentially the top player, right? He's taken more money from more people than anybody else, you know. <laughs> right. And so he just is this constant, like you know, like. You know, anytime I email him, he's got really smart things to say and whatever, right? But it was just like, you know, who is this guy? That's interesting. Like, what is what is his take on this? And they did interview him in there, and that's that's cool, right? Like, yeah, that this is Australian cool. game fan basically is like uh, is in there talking about what it was like to break the Castle Doctrine back in the day and whatever. Right? Yeah, uh, I mean that like that there speaks to something about uh, about gaming that I think is missed in a lot of a lot of discourse around it, and even like high end discourse. I I, I always want to say academic discourse because it sort of is still the um, the axe I have to grind. But like uh, just discourse in general, like it seems to miss the fact that these are um, also objects for enthusiasts and objects people just enjoy um, engaging with. Like I'm, I'm struck by I'm struck by you saying that you worked on hypertext with your advisor in, in graduate school. But then like that connection between like, you know, cause I remember the rise of hypertext and the hypertext novel and stuff like that in like Oh seven, Oh eight. You mean like afternoon, afternoon, a story and that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, uh what's the one though? The one about the, the train crash, uh, uh, two fifty six or I, I can't remember the exact name. It's a number, uh, but you just click through and you sort of follow what like nine people who got into a, pl- a train crash and you, can go back around and go through nine different other people or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, I think you're, you're thinking of the second generation of hypertext. I'm talking about the first. So the first generation of hypertext came out on floppy disks for Macintosh. Oh, you know. sure. Okay. So you're thinking of like, are you thinking of like uh, twisty little passages or like, uh, well, so no, there was, so there was, yeah, I think, so that's, um, um, Nick Montfort's book. Well, it's also, uh, it's all, it was also that, no, was, what, what was the game called? There was the, the, uh, the game, the game that's referenced in twisty little passages is like a, uh, some early well, you, adventure no, you're game. No, you're talking about interactive fiction. Yeah, that's interactive fiction. So no, I'm no, actually no. thinking... So, so, so Hypertext was this whole other... like sto- uh, There was a company called Eastgate that had this thing called Story Space. Okay. That these like sort of postmodern authors were using back... But basically back before the internet even to oh, interesting. author these you know, hypertextual fiction kinds of things. And you'd buy them like a book, you know, be this like $20 thing that was like this novel, but you'd open the book up and there'd be a floppy disk. You stick it to your Macintosh. Right. And and so we (laughs) were actually, we were in, when I was in college, this would have been 99. We were assigned some of these historical hypertext fiction things in a postmodern fiction class, just as like, you're reading Don DeLillo, you're reading Nabokov and you're reading, you know, uh, afternoon, a story, which is like a hypertext. Uh, that you need to go to the lab and use a Macintosh for, right? Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I, it's 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 amazing. Uh, I mean, this is my own ignorance, but like, it's amazing uh, re- hearing about like the the origins of early gaming from like, especially early PC gaming, because they have these little like uh, tidbits of of history that are so fascinating. It, like, I only thought that that was related to um, it wasn't Goldsmith. It was um, uh, 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 the guy who wrote um, Neuromancer, Gibson. Didn't Gibson have like a like a self deleting um, interactive text that he put out on floppy disk? Hmm, um, yeah, like no, a, I, I haven't heard about it, but I could. I okay, could yeah, I mean, it's like I've heard about stuff like that, but like that that always seemed non interactive. So I thought interactivity sort of came with the internet, but that's super interesting. Well, I mean, the the idea that so you you brought up the enthusiast nature of games, or mm-hmm. you know, the importance sure. of the players, right? And and that is something interesting that really sets them apart from other things, other media, mediums or media, right? Because, right. Uh, uh, you know, we wouldn't even imagine, like, 
uh, you know, if if you were writing like a little kind of career retrospective, like a novelist or something, that you include an interview with one of their prominent readers. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, oh, unless their be... prominent reader was another novelist, right? Like you might. Well, no, you know, right, yeah, maybe it's a critic. On maybe it, you know, you know, right? it, when you read like you like the 50th anniversary edition of Lolita or whatever, you know, they they often have several different things in the in the format or right of like you know. Oh, here's this thing from the person who edited this. Here's the thing sure. from the person who knew Nabokov back when they were growing up together. You know, here's, the, but you wouldn't just have here's one of here's one of Lolita's biggest fans writing <laughs> how important the book is to them or something, right? It just it doesn't even make sense. Um, and or what what are the best what are the best what are the best readers of the book? <laughs> right, they, they, they read the they read the book better than anybody else. <laughs> They read the, yeah, they read the book 150 times and here we are. To talk to well, them. it's not even times, right? It's like how skillful they are. To, you know, I mean, there really is a like Joshua Collins literally in a measurable way is the best player in several of my games, right? He has the highest score in Primrose. He won the most money in Corsair Minuet. He made the most and he won one of the contest things of the Castle Doctrine where he won some money and built one of the houses that was the most impenetrable, you know, and so he's just like. It's impossible to argue. It's not just a matter of opinion, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I mean, do you think measurably, he's like a chess, the equivalent of a chess master in <laughs> some of the games I've made, right? So, like, um, and that we can make those measurements, right? Like, we can we can measure not just the work itself, but also the people who play it, right? Um, and, and there's a different relationship there, and so that that's yeah. why it kind of the idea of seeing it as a text is kind of somewhat missing a big pick, part of the picture, right? Well, yeah, I guess so. Like, I mean, there's like, there's a, I mean, this is the fascination we talk about with, uh, w with movies like War Games or something like that, right? Where the, there's like, people try to attach significance, like real world significance or like some sort of tactical significance to, to high scores, right? And like, on some level that misses the point, because of course, like, you don't have to be training for the military to enjoy well, Space Invaders or whatever, whatever, uh, uh Galaga. Um, but also, as you say, like it, it sort of gets at the point of saying like these are codifiable ways of defining who is the best, you know, reader, player, however you want to imagine it of this, of this game. But I, I wonder, like, is does the does the text designation only miss the point in like non-narrative games? Like generally, obviously, your your games all have narrative, but something like the Castle Doctrine, right, which is almost more like a roguelike. Um, no, I would say I would say my games, none of my games have narrative. I mean, not in the tr not in the tr not in the traditional sense. I've I've avoided that, like the play. I mean, Bold there's claim. not there's not a single linear piece of text that ever comes up on the screen and explains anything, or has a piece of dialogue, or a storyline, or I mean, there's uh, people try to call it. They try to say they're stories somehow, but they're all mm -hmm. interactive stories. If they are, they're story generating systems, maybe right? Like one okay. hour, one life. Like there's no there's no. I didn't author any story in there, right? The stories are authored by the players as they play, right? Like I was this old woman and I had three grandchildren running around and then they died and you know then I was left alone you know I didn't write that story right? right I mean but how is that is that different in a way like obviously it's different in a way but is that like materially different from something like um I don't know you take something like the 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 most radical postmodern fiction something like a Kathy Acker or something like that where you read it and like three people are going to come across three people are going to read the same book and come across with three different readings I mean it, do you think novels can act as those systems or is the text actually a barrier there? Yeah, no, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I've read, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I've read the most, the most crazy cutting edge uh, postmodern fiction, but like, I don't know, I guess I would think of something like Pale Fire. Okay. Pale uh, Fire is a good example. Which, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, sort of modern slash postmodern era. Right. And so um, it, 
you know, it's this kind of crazy, like when you sit down with it, you don't even know what you're getting into. You're kind of like reading this somewhat bad poem. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I guess that's the way I took it at the time. I mean, I, you know, uh, I'd read a lot of poetry up until that point and I was like, this is not even that. And so one of my friends said later, no, it's an amazing poem. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's really meant to be an amazing poem. <laughs> And you're reading this for pages and pages. It just keeps going on and on and on. And it's just like, you know, what is this? Like, what? Like, how is this even like, this is not a novel. Like, what? Like, <laughs> I don't want to read the rest of this poem. I don't even know if you need to read the whole poem, right? Then you kind of start looking at some of the footnotes and you kind of go down this rabbit hole. And then you realize that you're not really necessarily supposed to be reading the poem linearly anyway. And you kind of like go through this, this you know, warren of tunnels <laughs> and all the right. footnotes. Basically, the rest of the novel is footnotes, right? Right. And so, you know, that kind of thing where you're like, you're not, you know, there's not even a, a clear pathway through, like what order are you supposed to do this in? You're certainly not supposed to read the footnotes linearly from page 35 up to page 150 <laughs> one by one, right? I mean, it wouldn't make any, you know. So yeah. anyway, so that kind of thing, you know, then the question of when you're done, right? I mean, that was one of the things our teacher who was teaching the book I talked about, right? It's like, you know, when do you <laughs> decide, decide that you finished this novel, right? After you've read every single footnote, <laughs> Yeah, is you know, that the after, end? after you played every there's a thing called word golf i think or word i can't remember what it, it is where the, the, one of the characters in the book kind of talks about it in one of the footnotes but it's a game where you i don't know look up a word and then find a definition for the word and then look up a word from there and see how many how many uh how many strokes you can get to get between two words somehow oh, okay. by following the definition chains yeah, sure. And so th there's some word golf games in the footnotes that you can kind of play, right? <laughs> and <laughs> right. so then you're like, you're like, am I, you know, do I need to play every round of word golf that's available? And <laughs> you know, by jumping around through the footnotes, looking for these definitions and so on. And um, yeah, anyway, I don't know. So like, yeah. So the question of what it even means to read the thing becomes a question. I mean, obviously, yeah. what does it mean? And that that question is similar to, you know, any game that I've made for sure. That's like, interesting. When do you when do you say that you're finished? When do you say that you've actually played it? You know, if you play one hour one life and you die as a baby after thirty seconds, you're like, Well, I lived my life. That was my story. Done I'm with done. the game. <laughs> yeah, I'm done. Is that right? You know, or you know, do you have to live till age sixty at least once, which is quite an accomplishment for a new player. It usually takes them several hours to figure out how to survive that long. Right. Is that kind of enough to say that they're done or you, do you have to play for 250 hours over four weeks like some of the most obsessed players <laughs> who've really gone deep into every little system and have lived, you know, maybe hundreds of lives up to age 60 during that time? Um, you know, is that are they done? You know, like and I, as I keep adding stuff to it, I'm adding stuff every week. Right. <laughs> do you have right. to keep coming back to it? like, you know, if, if you stop now, did you play the game when I'm going to be working on it for two more years and it's going to be totally different by the end? You know, so it's very hard to compare these things to anything that's going on in any sort of non-digital novel, right? I mean, you yeah, because you can add stuff. I mean, that's like that's that seems to be the exact difference. Where like you basically get to decide, and especially you as a, as an independent producer, you get to decide like is the game finished or not from your end. Like you actually get to make a designation, um, and Edit Fact can rescind that designation at any time. Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, that's totally different. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I, we could get back to the more interesting issue, which is like the issue of what, you know, sort of counts as a narrative or what is a narrative work or what is it, you know, so. Right. Because I was going to um, ask you, do you feel like Palefire has a narrative? Like, would you would you say that Palefire has a narrative if like after you sort of described it there? Yeah, it's it's interesting because there is toward the end in some of the footnotes, the, the plot thickens, right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then you realize it's actually kind of a mystery novel. Right? 
<laughs> right. Yeah, that's what people uh, seem to love. Well, I mean, as you point out, people have all sorts of different readings. So that's what some people seem to love about it. No, I know. But it's sort of like you kind of uh, when you start off reading it, you're like reading this poem that goes on forever. Right. And then you're like, oh, this is a long ass poem. I really <laughs> read all this, you know, canto after canto after canto of this poem. And then you kind of fall down into some footnotes and it kind of gets a little bit funny or interesting that there's these weird footnotes and that some of them don't really make sense. Or like, who's the guy writing these footnotes? Like, you know, where does he get off like making these claims? The poem. And then, you know, as you go further and further into footnotes, you know, the, the details of the relationship between this guy writing the footnotes and the supposed author of the poem become more and more clear and more and more muddled and, you know, more and more interesting. And like, you know, and by the end, you're sort of um, you, you realize that the novel's about this other character, the one who wrote the footnotes. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm spoiling. I'm spoiling Pale Fire. Spoiling Pale Fire. If you haven't, it's been, haven't it's read been Pale like Fire 20 in the last hundred years I, or whatever. Been, yeah. yeah. Been 20 years since I read it. Right. So um, but, you know, that like. By the end, you kind of are hooked on the plot, right? Right. <laughs> Whereas before, it was sort of this like very technical, formal kind of slog through this weird, weirdly constructed textual work, right? Then by the end, you're like, "Ooh, it's a it's a page turner now. <laughs> I can't wait to see what's going to happen," you know. And so it's a, it's kind of an interesting parlor trick, right, on the Bakov's part. Right? I like, mean, would that know, be would that be what you'd expect people to to experience in um, in one hour, one life? I mean, like it seems like if you play it for two hundred fifty hours. Um, you get so invested in the systems that they're telling their own kind of story, right? Their story about what, you know, what constitutes survival, what's, what's necessary to live a life, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I guess the big difference is, um, and this is, you know, just basically this, this is the, the main thing I've been trying to do throughout my whole career. So if I, if I haven't done it successfully or people don't see my work that way, then I failed. Right. To some degree. <laughs> Which well, is like, yeah. I mean, passage cultivation, those early games, gravitation, um, between, you know, which was at the IGF back in the day and all that. Those were all about, and, and my work continues to do this to some degree, but the, the big unsolved problem at the time was, like, how do we do anything that relates to the human condition or feels like it has any kind of artistic weight to it or value or meaning uh, without resorting to linearity and just like putting like cutscenes or little bits of text in our game, right? Right. Um, you know, and if you look at a game like Braid that came out roughly around the same time as Passage, um, you know, Braid was still leaning pretty heavily on blocks of text. Absolutely. As, yeah. Uh, and now, now Braid had a lot of other um, things that sort of emerged out of its structure in terms of the way you'd interpret and read it and so on, and, and its sort of depth and meaning. And the text was just sort of almost maybe even unnecessary. I don't know. I mean, I guess it seems sort of necessary. Like a lot of the stuff I read out of braid or understood other structural aspects of the game to mean to me were triggered because of things I read in the text that were like little hints, like breadcrumbs, right. That was like, Oh, maybe this means more than that. Maybe the structure means something, you know? Yeah. And so, um, it's an interesting so, question if it would just like mean the same, like if anyone would actually follow like the implicit breadcrumbs of braid without the text. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. I don't think. I don't think so. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember. It's been ages since I have played. Braid, but you know, in, like in the years. witness, in the witness, John has gotten. I mean, yes, there's these audio diary things you pick up in the witness, but they're all just historical quotes, right? Um, and so John has gotten really kind of further away from this. Like the way we're going to convey meaning is through these linearly authored like blocks of text. But anyway, that was sort of the only way we knew at the time, right? Like there were all these games like, you know, Metal Gear Solid or something that's just filled with all this exposition and cut scenes um, before you went back to sneaking, sneaking around and shooting and choking <laughs> right. guards or whatever. And, uh, and so, you know, it seemed like, oh, you know, that's the way forward. And then the question is, well, 
if that's the way forward, what you know, what is the manifest destiny of these things, right? Like, yeah, what are we once doing we get, here? Yeah, what, once we get good at, enough at this, like, what is it just going to be an, a movie, or maybe even in, like an interact, like a really like obviously, you know, cut scenes are just because of technical limitations. You know, when you look at something like facade, you're like, this is like. A, it's like all cut scene, except none of it's a cut scene, right? Right, right. <laughs> you know, and maybe we can imagine AI getting to the point someday in the future where, like, we've kind of, like, yeah, like, like cast off the shackles of, of, of the necessary linearity and we're able to, or Half-Life 2 or whatever, right? Where it's like everything, like, every, uh, there's all these characters talking to you all the time all around you and there's these interesting dramatic things happening, uh, but they're fully interactive somehow. And it's like, mm-hmm. a, it's like a movie that you're, you're the main character in. Like, you know, like it's like existence or something, right? <laughs> you know, that's like, that's like our manifest destiny. And, but it seems like to me at the time it, and still today, it seems so far away, right? Like, and it's still just as far away as it ever was. I mean, we're not any closer, you know, I don't know how many years later now, the, you know, 14, 15 years later yeah. uh, to that kind of AI driven manifest destiny of fully interactive movies. Then we, you know, we're no closer at all. I don't see any steps of progress in that direction. So it seemed like a dead yeah. end 14 years ago to me, like, we can sit around and wait for the singularity and then finally we'll be free to like make this thing that we're dreaming of. In the meantime, we're going to have all these linear cutscenes, or we can try to figure out how games can do their own thing. Right. Um, you know, and, and so we don't, we don't go to see a movie and, you know, expect to see beyond the, the yellow text in star Wars. Right. Like we don't go, and it's almost just a, it's just a gimmick, right? It's like, yeah, but they don't need the yellow text anymore. <laughs> I mean, the yellow, no, but the yellow text is playing homage to an older form. I mean, you know, it's paying homage mm-hmm. to these old space operas, right? Which, I mean, there are sure. examples that literally had exactly the same yellow, not, I don't know if it's yellow, but text moving up the screen like that. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Those old from, from like the forties like or whatever. Right. Yeah. 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 And, and so, um, you know, it's paying homage to those things and the, that's all it is, right? It's not necessary. It's not even really part of the storyline. Um, often you read it and you're kind of confused because you don't even know who these characters are that they're, they're, they're talking about quite yet because you're just kind of you haven't watched the movie yet, right? <laughs> right. Um, I mean, assuming that you don't know Star Wars, if you just sat down and starts talking about all these the Rebel Alliance and all this kind of stuff, you're like, well, okay. Who's oh, I mean, famously, like I, that, like, I just always think of the episode one scroll, which just was completely, I mean, I, I had seen all the Star Wars before going to see episode one and it was still um, gibberish because it was you know, the the complexity of it, the complexity of all like the trade routes and embargoes and stuff that they were sort of hinting at in that. that yeah. Story. Oh, like, yeah. I guess we I'm going to have to see. We have a problem a problem with the Viceroy. Yeah. Right. It's like, well, <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that famous <laughs> Star Wars character. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, like, uh, anyway, aside from that, we don't uh, in modern movies, we don't expect to go in and just be bombarded with a lot of text, right? As the way that the movie's communicating anything to us. If you go back in time, though, before people figured out a bunch of different things in movies, I mean, this is an old axe that I've been grinding for like more than a decade, you will see a lot more text, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, silent movies and in the transition away from silent movies, there were a lot of things that came up on the screen that would explain something that we now know how to explain in a filmic cinematic way, right? Um, like classic is like the, like the next morning, dot, 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 right? Yeah. I've never seen, we don't need to show that text anymore, that transitional text, because we know we figured out a way, a cinematic way to indicate clearly to viewers that this is the next morning, right? Um, because you see a show, the character going to bed in the dark, and then you show them waking up with like low, low angle light coming through the window and the rooster crows and they have like drool <laughs> on their chin and their hair's all messed up, you it's know, playing you the morning of, song. Yeah, you know that it's the next morning. You don't need that text. But like early on, they're like, well, how people are going to be confused. 
you know, if we just show somebody walking around later on in a different setting, they're going to be like, what, like, what, like this jump in time. I don't, I don't get it. Right. Um, yeah. So and I, I, I feel like we, we, as, as game developers are, you know, especially 15 years ago, we're at this point where it was like, we don't know how to express anything or have any meaningful kind of interactive stories coming out of our work. So we just look back to the medium that we know the best and we kind of stick that in there. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. We know how to do this in text. You know, like there was no confusion in the early days of film about how to express things in text. They had right. they had hundreds of years of literary, thousands of years of literary history behind them. So we are sitting here with all these years of cinematic history behind us and literary history as well. If you look at something like Braid, like John was obviously really inspired by he even named certain novels as influences in Braid, right? Yeah. Um, and so, like, well, how are we going to express this stuff? Well, let's put some text on the screen or let's put a little movie in there. Like we know how to do that. Like that's already a solved problem, right? Well, and it's also it's also audience expectation, right? Well, I mean like something like Passage is all about how to not do that, right? Like mm. can we make a thing about, you know, choices that you're making in your life and sort of something that kind of um, where maybe a story arc even emerges out of it or some meaning emerges out of it without reverting to some other medium to do the heavy lifting for us, right? Yeah. Um, and so my whole career has been about that essentially, right? Like like none of my games have ever had any linear medium of any kind in them. Um and are always like these interactive systems of some kind and then there's some meaning that kind of spins out of that or some aesthetic experience in the later work that spins out of that. Um and you know that's sort of the, the grand quest, right? Like and you know one hour one life, I guess uh, after everything that I've done has come closest to actually realizing that in sort of a way that's a, a very non-trivial way, right? I mean, mm. like if you look at Passage or something, you're like, well, yeah, okay, I had this emotional experience there, but it's a very simple thing, <laughs> and it doesn't really capture that many different stories, and the stories that it captures are very simple and very abstract, right? Right. Um, and, and, like, the meaning there is kind of thin, um, whereas, like, in One Hour, One Life, like, it's undeniable. Like, the kinds, of, the kinds of stories that people experience inside that interactive system, um, that all I did was kick in motion, right? I didn't author any of them or yeah. plan any of them or anything um, are very deep, very rich, very meaningful, very sort of all these different possible things can happen and all these different possible emergent things, you know, like um, stories can emerge from it. And, you know, people are like, people are sometimes live blogging essentially in their reviews or whatever. Here's what just happened to me. Like you, would have, like, <laughs> which I mean, is, it must be a dream for you. I mean, that must just be so exciting to see. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, well, I guess this, this worked, right. Right. Um, but it took, you know, for me, it took like 15 years to sort of crack that nut, right? And it also took a lot of like doing things a totally different way than I had been originally and, you know, kind of jettisoning, p- promising things that I saw along the way that I tried to, for a game or two that didn't really end up working out or didn't, didn't end up being deep enough or interesting enough or there wasn't enough meaning coming out of this or, yeah, but, you know. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Cool, but... You know, and then so what's the actual approach? Like, what kind of approach can we take to actually, you know, like create this like meaning generating system that, you know, can can cover all these different aspects of of the human experience? Um, and, you know, it, it, it just all these other little things along the way kind of felt stunted in one way or another or unsustainable. And one like sleep is death worked. Right. Sleep is death is this two player interactive storytelling system uh, where one player is the essentially the director, the, the man or the person behind the curtain. And the other player, the other player is like the main character in the story. 
So right. you kind of jump into the story, you find yourself waking up in some situation as a main character, and there's all these other characters around you talking to you and doing things around you, and you can ask them questions, and they talk back to you very unlike NPCs in a normal game with intelligent <laughs> responses that actually respond directly to what you're asking. Right. Um, and it seems like a magic trick at first until you realize there's another human being pulling all the levers behind there, making all those characters talk, right? It's like a, like a giant, <laughs> giant pixelated pup- puppet show or something. Um, and so that solves the problem too. I mean, like, you know, Sleep is Death was like, oh, okay, well, now we can finally make games about all these other topics that we've never been able to really make good games about, right? Right. Like, I made a game about the time my wife almost died from an asthma attack, right? Right, sure. <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, made a hard, game about a water do. shortage where people are making tough choices about who to who, who to betray in order to keep their family alive with the last <laughs> bit of water in town, right? Right. Um, and and it wasn't just like it was not at all a little movie about that subject. There were actually the choices were sort of voiced upon the player, and you know, and and it, and it. And the player made choices that you know weren't necess- the author wasn't necessarily expecting, and they had to roll with it. And something strange and unusual kind of came out of it, you know. Yeah. That is like the sort of, but you're stuck with this very unsustainable model for how it works, right? Which is that somebody has to prepare for an hour ahead of time, <laughs> <laughs> and it's only a one to one, you know, you know, it's very inefficient, right? That's like one creator interacts with one consumer. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the it's, it's the it's the Edison Studios of its time, right? Like it's just like you can get a you could spend a lot of time and get a three minute movie, uh, yeah. or you can spend a ton of time and get like a one experience thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or you know, imagine the ultimate art experience where Yoko Ono or something, you know, you stand <laughs> in line and you get to go in and have this art experience with Yoko Ono one on one, right? Yeah, right, <laughs> one at a time, and it takes you know the chances of you ever even getting even if you stood in line for a year or whatever, you just wouldn't be one of the ones who actually finally made it through, right? Um, right, yeah. I I guess like I it's interesting. So it worked, it worked but oh, it yeah, had these ahead. burdens, right? And so it's like sure. and, and passage worked but it felt unsatisfying. Sleep is death finally solved the problem but in an uns, uh, like an unsustainable way. I mean, people don't still mm-hmm. play it today for a reason. Um, right. It wasn't the solution we've all been looking for and <laughs> we are all that's it. We're done. We found sleep is death, right? It'd be pretty amazing. Um, it would be a, it would be an amazing uh, ego moment to say that you had solved gaming. I would be pretty impressed if you were just like, <laughs> "Well, I did that already." Like, well, no, I'm but done. to solve this one very narrow problem, right? <laughs> yeah, sure, that's true. Uh, um and so um you know, I kind of got away from that problem for a while and was just like, "Well, let's just create aesthetically rich experiences sure. uh, that are unlike anything people have experienced before." Like, you know, inside of Starfield Sky is like, oh, you know, what it's like to experience infinity firsthand, you know, mm-hmm. right. uh, and to actually grapple with it as a gameplay element. And then, you know, uh, the Castle Doctrine is, you know, about creating this aesthetic of, of vulnerability and violation, which, uh, you know, you don't normally experience in games very often. Uh, feeling no. power, powerlessness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, uh, even like even fortress building games, like, say, a Fallout 4 or something like that, it's all about making a power, like a, a, an extremely powerful fortress as opposed to something that feels like it's going to fall apart. Right, right. And so, you know, okay, this is sort of like these other things are kind of like, you know, tapping into one little corner of the human experience that, you know, don't normally get tapped into by games, you know, Um, even if it's a very abstract one, like, you know, human being grappling with infinity, which they can't really get their head around. Sure. Or it's a very like specifically dark one that, you know, is in a lot of movies and stuff, but games don't normally touch in in a very, in a very satisfying way. Right. Like this vulnerability and violation. Um, and paranoia and obsession over security and, you know, these kinds of things. Um, so, okay, that's a sort of narrow thing. And then, oh, well, like, I mean, you know, Cordial Minuet is like, 
well, here's this amazing experience you'll have if you're gambling. <laughs> you know, just the feeling that you have when you're going up against another player in a competitive uh, kind of gambling type game like poker or something like what it does to you emotionally and aesthetically and what it kind of like how it kind of drives you crazy in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I wanted to make, you know, make a game that had that kind of power. And um, but, you know, it doesn't really kind of tackle this bigger, longer term problem. Right. Of like, how do we make games about human stories <laughs> that aren't are, are, are actually interactive and, and not authored? Right. And so I mean, like, yeah. kind of like, well, a one hour one life kind of kind of comes back after all these years of experience making multiplayer games in other contexts. And it was like, oh, well, multiplayer is clearly the way to do this. Sleep is death is the first stab at this. But like, how do we, how do we, how do we, how do we make it happen in a more sort of sustainable way and allow, you know, I mean, I, I guess the stories in One Hour One Life are also way more limited than the stories that are possible in Sleep Is Death, right? Sleep Is Death, any you can make a story about anything, you know, right? Uh, yeah, in One Hour One Life, it's a story, a story about surviving, yeah, <laughs> you know, in a, in a pretty narrow context. But within within that context, there's all these family dynamics and other things that come out that games have never touched, right? So. Hmm. Um, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. I, I like two questions come up from it, and I want to ask the first one first because it's it's the most interesting to me. Uh, which maybe is is reversed, but whatever. Um, the uh, like, do you consider the audience? So you've been talking about the audience as this as this almost like an interlocutor. I mean, actually, like an interlocutor, but almost like a a, a problem. A, the, if you talk about if you talk about um, I don't know, art needing restrictions. Uh, the audience sort of operates as your restriction in, in a way. Like, do you, do you consider the audience like a, an antagonist in your work? Do you work, do you try and like, uh, uh, stump the audience's ability to, you know, gamify the experience and make it not about human experience? Or do you consider them more like a collaborator or protagonist, someone you're kind of working with? Yeah. I mean, I guess protagonist feels like a better term for them. I mean, they, they're sort of like, they, in a way, they're sort of the main event, right? Yeah, <laughs> they're, so, they're sort of, they're, they're sort of the, yeah, they, they are the the only thing that makes the game work or come alive or, or you know, it's, 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 you know, it's kind of easy to, people would make the same argument about a novel or something like the novel is nothing without the reader, right? But mm -hmm. it's not quite the same, right? The novel is still, uh, still, still sort of, still sort of sits there <laughs> in a, this little time capsule state and is waiting for any reader who stumbles along at any point, right? Yeah. And a game like One Hour One Life is so dependent on a population of players interacting with each other in a very deep way, where they're making choices all along the way that, you know, like they can dramatically change the very fabric of of the game experience by just. It could become a dead game, right? Like if if there were no if there was no one playing, the game would be. I mean, it wouldn't just be different. It would actually be almost like unplayable under your actual vision, right? Right, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's you can't really pull the game apart from the base of players who are playing it, right? It's like kind mm -hmm. of like trying to talk about, you know, the chess community without talking about the chess chess players. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. They're not right, just or the game of that. chess. When we think of the game of chess, right, we're not just thinking about this box full of pieces or the rules, right? We're thinking about Bobby Fischer and... Um, Oh, I can't remember the guys who, who so be like Gary Kasparov. Kasparov. Or, yeah, right, yeah. right. We're, we're thinking about this history of the game and and the current community of people who are playing it. And when you think of the game of chess, you might even imagine, you know, a room full of people at the library with those green and white mats laid out on the tables, right? And their little timers. Or you think of people watching the square park with their little and the little chess tables that are built yep. into the park. You know, exactly what I thought of. Yeah, yeah, but that's that is the game of chess, right? It's mm -hmm. those people playing it in the moment at the time that is 
you know, is what the game actually is, right? Hmm. And if if um, if people stopped playing chess slowly over time to the point where there was like the last chess game happened and then people just stopped, um, the game of chess kind of doesn't really exist anymore in the way that it currently does, right? Right. Um, yeah. Even so, if we knew all the rules, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of yeah it exists in a to use a, a poorly suited term in a very in only an academic sense. <laughs> <laughs> So um, anyway, uh, yeah, so I, I feel like, yeah, they're not, um, I, although, uh, you know, in terms of to see them as anti- antagonists or protagonists, um, you know, it's that's I mean, a big glib on I, my I, part. I, understand. I, I, I am I am constantly, you know, um, having to deal with them, having to have them route around. They always route around whatever solutions I come up with to any problem that I see in the game design. Sure. And then I'm constantly scrambling to route around them again, right? And like, you know, so we're we're like this, we're in this little kind of like it's like whack-a-mole, or you know, players are smart, they tend to optimize their path through the game, and you know, if you think you put a little stumbling block in their way, that's going to make something more interesting. They will just as quickly find you know some other little path around it where they don't even have to address the stumbling block. Right. Sure. Um, so, you know, like I, the, the, the battle over the past five weeks, and this might be kind of a, a boring, very detailed story, but a uh, very specific story, right, is, is, the, the, is the, carrot, the carrot issue in One Hour, One Life. So um, <laughs> you, can, you can get berries as a hunter-gatherer, and then the, the first sort of representation of farming in the game is that you can till these rows and you can plant carrot seeds. And carrots will grow, and then you can eat the carrots in, instead of berries, and you can kind of keep getting more seeds from your carrots and replanting to get a little sustainable food supply, even after the berries have run out, right? It's the first, the first, you know, 10,000 years ago, cradle of agriculture kind of moment where you can settle down. You don't have to wander around looking for more berry bushes. And so this is great, right? But players very quickly learn to be very good at farming and very efficient at it. And then they run into what I am calling the infinite carrot problem, (laughs) (laughs) which is that they can produce carrots at essentially whatever rate they want to. Um, I mean, there's some time limits on it and so on. And each carrot takes each carrot plot takes a while to, to grow, but um, you know, they can get enough fertile soil rows planted and keep replanting them that they can kind of like have the steady supply of carrots that essentially never runs out. And my idea for the game is that, you know, I don't want there ever be a steady state because that's not an interesting dramatic there's nothing interesting dramatic happening once people reach a steady state and just go forever at that state. Right? Yeah. Once they figure out an exploit, then it's not really yeah. about life. Yes. <laughs> so they're supposed to be, they're supposed to be, you know, the sort of constant dramatic tension of, you know, every village should crash eventually and run out of food or something where they all die out. Right. And like, and the question of like how to make sure that that just like everyone dies at age 60 in the game, like every life eventually comes to an end, no matter what you do, there's mm-hmm. a meta meta question of like how long can a given village survive in a given location People are going to make mistakes along the way transgenerationally and not be able to communicate perfectly across generations. So eventually those mistakes kind of pile up. But the question is, and that has happened for the most part. Almost every village has eventually died just out of its own mistakes piling up. But what happens when people get good enough where they're not making enough of those mistakes right. um, that they can? And they just now actually as of today, they have... Uh, They've now lived a hundred generations in one family line without ever dying out. <laughs> That's got to be uh, troubling. Uh, you know, and lo- two days ago, the record was 30. So in the past <laughs> day, they've lived 80 generations in one family line. And uh, there's, I think it's the Lee family, I think it's called. They, they, when you get born into them, they tell you, we've been going for more than 90 generations. <laughs> hey, so, so, got to advertise. Um, so, the, yeah, so, welcome to the Lee family. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the problem there is like, okay, like how do I, 
I, I need to, this carrot farming thing, which is just this kind of one weird trick once you master it to live forever, yeah. you know, to keep your generations going forever. Um, you know, and, and then on top of that, people aren't motivated to go to any of the more advanced food systems that are a little bit more efficient than carrots. So like carrots are good enough. We can we can have uh, as many as we need here. Right. So I'm trying to figure out ways to make it run out. Right. And so I, I came up with this idea that every time you let your carrots go to seed, they consume the fertile soil like they ruin the soil fertility in that spot. So oh, you don't need to let smart. most of them go to seed because the, the carrot seeds can seed a lot of rows after you let one row go to seed. But so um, this is going to be, you know, every time you let them go to seed, you get one less bit of fertile soil. So your farm plot kind of shrinks gradually over time. And then maybe you can do some composting or something to build some more. But it's always going to be slightly unsustainable. And you're eventually going to run out of fertile soil in that area and have to move. And yeah. players very quickly realized that they, were, they found out that the wild carrot plants reseed every hour. So as long <laughs> as they don't dig them up to eat the carrots... They just keep using them. They keep going and foraging for carrot seeds. They never have to let any of their domestic carrots go to seed. <laughs> oh, no. So, uh, you know, so it's just like these little... And I didn't really realize why. I went to village after village, and I was like, I don't see any compost piles. Like, what's going on here? How they can... Then, then over time, I realized, well, they're just, they're just never letting them go to seed, and they're always going out and finding carrot seeds in the, in the wild again. Um, you know, so any, anytime funny. I try to, try to get them to, like, you know, try to kind of rope them into something they find a way to sort of w wiggle their way out of the rope <laughs> and i wild. actually recently just added earthworms i was finally like well composting even itself if it's done perfectly is sort of sustainable so that's still a problem i thought that was the problem why hasn't there been a carrot famine uh maybe because composting isn't is still too sustainable so i added these earthworms recently where like there's a limited supply of earthworms in the world and every compost pile needs one uh and, and you know once you sort of use up all your earthworms you just can't compost anymore Right. And, and, I, and then I was going around. I was like, no one's even using these earthworms. What's going on here? And it's because they, they were still, yeah, because they were still doing this carrot seeds from the wild thing. So now I'm oh, like, this man. week, I'm going to turn that off. Carrot seeds never respawn in the wild. See how you guys like that. <laughs> so the, and you're, people you're... freak out when that happens, right? They're like, oh, my God, this game is even before they even experience it. They see the, the patch note. And they're like, this game is over. It's ruined. We're all doomed. You know? You're like a vengeful god. I'm like, that's the idea, though, is like I want those dramatic things to happen, right? I want the village to slowly be running out of food after generations and have to, like, make a hard choice about packing up the wagons and moving to a greener pasture. Like, I, mm -hmm. that's interesting. Sitting here for hundreds of generations with 25 bearskin rugs because we've all gotten so rich <laughs> in this one spot, you know, it's not. So they're, they're, they're experiencing the, the blasé existence of the third generation trust fund baby, right? <laughs> well, yeah. And, <laughs> and that's also the blasé existence of, like, the end game of any video game where you're just like, okay um i've completed the game like i i'm i'm as powerful as i can possibly yeah like be. grand theft auto once you own every building in town and you're yeah like, you got every car at your disposal you're just like eh, what shall i do now maybe we'll play croquet this afternoon how about a little whist we played whist yesterday well you got your lock jaw in full effect you're just like oh. yeah right <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean there's like there's a there's a way that your games are and this is actually the the, the question so it came up super organically uh um, and I'll, I'll let you go after this because we've been on about an hour uh but the you know the, the your games seem to be a lot about like existential survival like ga games themselves are of course about survival a lot of times there's like death conditions in games like as as long as games have been games like even even board games have death conditions um uh, model as loss conditions uh but your games seem to be about like this sort of like existential survival of like you know in the castle doctrine it's the it's the survival of like against a bunch of forces who want to you know as you say like invade and and violate your 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 space um 
in passage, it's about the existential life uh, of a person in, in one hour, one life. It's also about the existential life of, of many people of a village. Like, do you feel like it's difficult to get the idea of like, for lack of a better term, because I've been using it over and over existentialism or like the idea of you will exist for only this period of time and it is an unbendable problem. Is that hard to get across to like a gaming community? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's sort of antithetical to the way the games normally work. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> sure. so, so, um, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, passage, one of the things passage was playing with back in the day was like, you know, video games treat death. So, you know, sort of casually, and it's just such a constant repetitive occurrence that it becomes sort of a non-occurrence, right. In, in, you know, in more modern like platformers, like super meat boy or something. Um, it oh, literally yeah. is, it literally is, is, is this just sort of like just a temporary little like slap on the wrist or something. Um, and even, you know, I don't know. I mean, that didn't matter that much in, you know, even in old Nintendo games where you had different ways to, to continue so many times and whatever. Passwords. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, and then of course, yeah. Passwords for like 30 lives in Contra. Right. Um, <laughs> sure. So, um, so yeah. So, so passage, one of the things that passage was doing is like, let's make a video game where you only die once at the very end. Like that's like, <laughs> that's, like <laughs> that's, that's it. That's, that's one of the concepts here, right? Like, okay, let's make a game where, where there's death in the game, but there's only one death in the game and it happens at the end. Just like, you know, a little bit more realistic treatment of death. Um, and one hour, one life is, is similar to that as well. Castle doctrine also, I mean, this idea of permadeath really kind of tackles that head on. I mean, a lot of other games have explored permadeath in recent years. Um, but you know, the idea that, you really want to have this kind of personal story that happens with a beginning and a middle and an end. And the end is part of what makes the whole thing meaningful. And I hope that's true of life as well. Um, yeah. Uh, to some degree. And so, uh, you know, the fact that we, we have a limited supply of time is what makes the choices meaningful moment to moment. Right. Um, if you, there isn't always tomorrow, <laughs> you know, so you can't just keep, you can't just put things off forever and just, you know, I think we'd, we'd be, we'd tend to do that if we actually had an infinite amount of time. I mean, um, we tend to do it with a limited amount of time. So yes, <laughs> yeah, we do, but we do it even more. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, so that, that sort of, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's, it's a different way for games to work. Um, in one hour, one life, players try to find ways around it uh, as much as I try to squash those ways around it, right? So, oh, initially new players were, like, new Eve kind of players in the world were spawning kind of too close to other villages that already existed, mm -hmm. which meant players got to be able to learn the map and find, like, their way back to any village they wanted to find their way back to in the next oh, life. Yeah, sure. You know, and so they, they sort of, like, even though death is supposed to mean the end of the story and you don't ever get to come back necessarily or it's very difficult to come back and ever find whatever what happened to my bakery did people use it in generations down the line maybe you get lucky enough to get born there in the future and it'd be this really special moment but players now were just like taking that they'd learned the map and they were trekking you know just back to the same spot over and over again and continuing work on the same village as often as they wanted to right so the death the death in the game didn't have the, the meaning that it was supposed to have right yeah um and so and players like that and they complained when i changed it um you know, I liked continuing to work on the same village life after life. Like, that was, that's how I got meaning out of the game. <laughs> I felt like I was, you know, but I, I was like, well, that's, you know, at the same time, it's not what it's supposed to be like, right? It's like... Yeah, I mean, you uh, still get to be the artist in this case. You get to say, yeah, like, you know, well, and, okay, and, that's and, you know, not the death, meaning I'm going for. Yeah, I mean, death is just kind of... Death goes back, again, to being this sort of meaningless event, if that's the case. Right. Um, and I, I feel like uh, with One Hour, One Life, 
part of the thesis is that part of the reason we have a lot of multiplayer video games now with like deep kind of social, supposedly social simulations taking place like Rust or even multiplayer Minecraft going back a ways. But we don't really see economics, law, um, sort of morality, any of these things, any of these social things kind of emerge in those games. And the question is why, right? And my thesis is because there's not death in those games, right? Like mm. death is actually the driving force behind uh, the fact that we engage in trade, right? Like the question of why, yeah. I, why am I willing to pay 49 cents a pound for bananas when I could get them for 10 cents a pound in Ecuador? Why don't I just fly down to Ecuador myself and get them? It's because I'm going to die someday. <laughs> yeah, right. I can't. I don't have time to go walk yeah. to Ecuador every time I need a, need a bunch of bananas. Right? Yeah, There's yes. limitations. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we, we engage in trade. Like in, in some game like Rust, if someone wanted to sell you some resources at a markup that they spent like an, a half hour going all the way across the map to get, you'd be like, screw you. I'm not paying your markup. I'll just walk the half hour myself, right? <laughs> right. But yeah, a exactly. half hour is like half of your life. Then you're like, yeah, I better get these things at a markup because I need to build this thing with them right now. And like, um, and the same thing is like, you know, why, why aren't there police in Rust? Why is there no sheriff that emerges in town? Why are people, <laughs> you know, it's and and it's because you know you can't say stop or I'll shoot <laughs> to somebody. If it doesn't matter. Just, yeah, you know, it's just going to respawn, right? Yeah. Um, okay, go for it. Right. <laughs> like, right. Right. And so all those things, like, why are there no police? Why are there no laws? Why are there no customs? Why are there no this or that? Why are there no hotels? Why are there no restaurants? Why are there no any of these things that emerge in, in a civilization aren't present. And so I'm trying to figure out, like, you know, is death the, the missing ingredient? If I put death in the game, real death, uh, where your time is precious, do all of a sudden all these things emerge, right? Like, you can mm-hmm. literally, you can put someone in jail in one hour in life, and it would mean something, right? Yeah. Um, because, you know, they life. would spend the rest of their life in jail. And uh, if they kill themselves in jail and suicide, they don't just get to spawn right outside the jail. They're in some totally different situation, hopefully, if the game is working as it should and players haven't found a way around the problem, right? <laughs> Which, they've, you know, is is uh, at any given point unlikely. It's likely to be one or the other, right? They're always likely to he- be heading towards the solution. It's like game entropy. Right, right. <laughs> all right, well, man. So that seems like a, yeah. a good place to end it. We're talking about uh, the uh, limited amount of time that we all have. Yeah, no, I agree. And we've actually done like one hour, one life here. So uh, yeah, absolutely. I was going to say the same thing. Thanks so much for being on, man. This was really fun. Um, anything you want to plug other than, I mean, all your games? Where can people find them? Uh, I don't know. One hour, one life is at onehouronelife.com or just do a Google search. Uh, and you can also find my homepage if you search for my name, Jason Rohr, R-O-H-R-E-R. Yeah, your SourceForge page has a lot of uh, a lot of good stuff on it. It's pretty pretty uh, pretty complete. Um, cool. Well, uh, thanks, man. This was really great, and uh, yeah. look forward to seeing what you produce in the future. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yep. Thanks a lot. <laughs>